Well, aren't we so blessed this morning? Blessed to have the children sing to us. Blessed to have this group up here helping us to sing better as a congregation. Blessed to hear Selena. Just truly blessed to even have good theological music, hymns to sing. I don't know about you, but my family, we start singing these in our family worship about the beginning of November. We can't wait to sing of Christ's birth, Christ's coming. Some of them even speak of Christ coming back, like joy to the world. And we don't always realize that. Good theology, good biblical teaching in the songs that we sing. You know, there's four parts to a worship service commanded in Scripture. We are called to gather together to sing, to pray, to read Scripture, and to preach, to hear a sermon. For the word to be proclaimed, for the building up of believers, for the praise and worship of God as His word goes out in a proclamation, and also to convict sinners so that they might come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And what better time to focus on Christ and the birth of Christ than this time of year? So I've paused the Roman series. If you're visiting with us today, I do invite you to come back. We're working our way through the book of Romans. We've only been in it a short time, only a couple of months. So if you're visiting for the first time, come back. In a couple of weeks, we'll pick back up with Romans. And we'll go into the first part where he says we're all sinners in need of a Savior. So that's to come in a few weeks. Today, though, I want to turn our attention to Christ's birth. It's all over Scripture. You know, this time of year, we often think of gifts and guys dressed in red suits. And, you know, giving gifts to our kids is a good thing. We shouldn't think that's somehow a pagan idea that we give a good gift to our kids. We do that often on birthdays and we do that to celebrate the birth of Christ if you choose in your family. But the ultimate gift is Christ himself, the Son of God, the gift of salvation. Remember to talk about that to your children, to your family this year. Make sure your kids grow up understanding that we are talking about something in the Bible, something that really happened that is described in Scripture, the birth of Christ. And this birth is all over Scripture. It's not just found in Matthew, as we read in Matthew 2 or, or Luke. It's found all throughout the Old Testament. There is a coming Savior. There is a coming Messiah that the people of Israel were looking forward to. There's a Messiah that has already come that all the world now looks back to. And so what I like to do around this time of year is go to the Old Testament passages that talk about the coming King. We need to be reminded of what's there in the Old Testament. We also need to, to think about how the Jews were looking forward to the Messiah. That way we get the full picture of what the Bible says about Christ. It's not just that He came, but it's that He was longed for, as we just sang about. He's the longed for Messiah. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And that song is the idea that a people were longing for their King to come. They were longing for the Messiah to come. And whether we're Jew or Gentile today, if you're in Christ, He is your Messiah. He is your Emmanuel. And so we can sing along with that song and truly love that the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. So we're going way back in our Old Testaments this morning to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, uh, sometimes a well-known event that occurred in this book. Turn to Numbers 24, that's where we'll start. 
2417 is the focus of today's sermon. I've entitled it The Star of Jacob. Now, the book of Numbers is called Numbers for a reason. It has a lot of numbers. It has all the genealogies and the people who came out of Egypt in the nation of Israel. Just to catch you up on what's occurred since the beginning of the Bible. God made man. He placed them in a perfect place. Adam and Eve. They sinned. They fell. Man continued to fall into sin over and over following Adam, following Eve. And then eventually a flood came upon the earth. Wiped out the whole human race except for Noah and his family. And then from Noah came a man called Abraham that God chose. The first Jew was actually a Gentile. He chose him out of a pagan place. Abraham himself was a pagan until God came to him. And through faith, of course, through faith, Abraham was saved, we might say. Abraham believed. Abraham was born again. And then God brought him into a land and said, here's what I'm going to give you and give all your descendants. Of course, that took many hundreds of years before God's prophecy fully came to fruition. But in that time frame, they had gone down to Egypt and multiplied there. All of Abraham's descendants had multiplied into a great nation. They had been rescued out of Egypt as slaves. God's bringing them now to the promised land. And he's counting in numbers at the beginning all these people. They're being recorded. And sometimes we read through numbers and we think, this is tedious. Why is this here? Well, it's all there for a reason. But right in the middle of all of these numbers, right in the middle of what seems to be just genealogy after genealogy, we have this event of Balaam the prophet. Balaam the prophet. Balaam who is called upon to curse Israel. And in the middle of Balaam's prophecies, we have this idea of a coming king, a star of Jacob. And it seems rather out of place. And so just with my first point this morning, I want to give you the background on Balaam, why he said what he said, and some lessons we can learn just about Balaam himself. So first of all, let's look at this passage after I read it, and I want to show you the false prophet with a true message. So let me read just a large section here to help you see the context. We'll start in Numbers 24 verse 14 and go all the way through 25 here. And now behold... I'm going to my people. This is Balaam speaking. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. And he looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Asher keep you captive? Then he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim. 
and they shall afflict Asher and will afflict Eber. So they also will come to destruction. Then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place. And Balak also went his way. So let's look, first of all, at just some background to this. Let's look at the false prophet with a true message. Now, in today's world, we want to stay away from false teachers. We want to stay away from false prophets. We don't want to even listen to anything they have to say. But if it's recorded in Scripture that a false prophet says something, and it's the words that God gave him to say, and the Bible clearly affirms that these things are true, then we need to believe them. Today, Scripture is no longer being written, so you can't believe what false prophets say. Occasionally, they might just read Scripture, and you say, well, that's true because they're reading God's Word. But other than that, we're supposed to be very careful with false teachers. Well, here's Balaam, and let me give you some background on him. He's given four prophecies right here in Numbers 22 through 24. He gave the third prophecy, and now he moves into what's called the fourth, which I just read to you. And the king that's hired him, Balak, has had enough of Balaam's blessings. Balaam was hired to curse Israel by the king of Moab named Balak. I know the names can get confusing here, but Balak is the king of Moab. He hires Balaam, a a soothsayer, a Gentile pagan soothsayer, to come and curse Israel. And in fact, Balaam cannot do that. All All he does is bless them over and over. And so Balak is tired of it. He says, go home, get out of here. You're not going to get paid for what I said I would pay you for. So now Balaam gives this fourth oracle, this fourth warning that he was not asked to give by King Balak. This is coming straight from the mouth of God. And he's speaking of things that are to come. Look at verse 14 that I read to you here, 14 and 15. And now behold, I'm going to my people, he says. And I'm going to tell you, though, before I go, I'm going to give you one last prophecy, one that you didn't ask for, but I'm going to advise you about this people that you want me to curse and your people in the future in the days to come. And the days to come. Remember that. And the days to come. That's a key phrase right there that we'll see elsewhere in the Bible. As I said, Balaam is a pagan soothsayer. He's from the region of Mesopotamia. In ancient times, a soothsayer would be somebody who spoke for the gods. You would hire this person to bless you. You would hire him to curse enemies. This goes all the way up through uh, roughly medieval times. They had these soothsayers, magicians, sorcerers, whatever you want to call them, that were supposed to practice a type of magic. And people believed in this, especially if they are not a Christian or a believing people. Let's go back with me to Numbers chapter 22. Let's get some background here just from the text on what has occurred. So the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt. They're a massive force. It's obvious that 2.53 million people are out in the wilderness coming into the promised land. And 22 verse 2 of Numbers says, Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. He looks out and says, I've heard about the Amorites. These people are massive. So Moab, that's his kingdom, was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, that's another tribe located close to Moab, now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at the time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, 
at Pethor, which is near the river, and the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land. They are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. He says, look, I know that you have some ability to curse people and bless people. It seems to always work out for you, Balaam. I've heard of you through the people that hire you. Please come and work for me. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hand. That's another word for sorcery, divination, soothsayer. And they came to Balaam and they repeated Balak's words to him. And then they go on to ask him, will you please come and work for me? Well, Balaam would not go because God came to him and said, don't go. Do not go with those people. So he doesn't go. They send another group to beg him, a more prestigious group of men come now to beg him, probably offering much more money, much more of a reward, a prize. And Balaam says, you know, let me think about it. Let me stay the night. Let me think about it. And he eventually does go because God says, I'll let you go. God says, go ahead and go with them. Arise in the morning and go with them. Now, Balaam's desire was for the money. His desire, which we'll see throughout Scripture, is for the money and to hurt these people, God's people, Israel. In fact, we already see that if you know this story. Three times, God puts the angel of the Lord. Now, I believe when you see the angel of Yahweh, we're talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. Three times God puts the angel of Yahweh in front of Balaam so that he cannot pass. Balaam doesn't see it, and you've probably heard the story about the donkey. Balaam's donkey can see the angel of the Lord. He keeps stopping. Balaam wonders why his his donkey keeps stopping. He basically spanks his donkey to get going. Finally, God opens the mouth of the animal. The animal rebukes Balaam. So Balaam is supposed to be this great and wonderful soothsayer, this seer. And one commentator said the lowly donkey is able to see the angel, while the so-called seer is blind to the presence of a real spiritual being. So you're already getting the sense, much like in 1 Samuel, that, that witch that supposedly can speak to the dead, and suddenly she's surprised when she hears the voice of Samuel. Well, you get the idea that Balaam's not a true prophet of God. You're already getting the sense that God is trying to teach Balaam a lesson. So often today, if people hear of Balaam, they hear of the donkey incident. The donkey spoke to him. All the kids kind of know that story from Bible study, children's Sunday school. But we need to go further and see that not only did God open the donkey's mouth, but Balaam ends up giving a great prophecy of the coming Messiah. Well, what can we learn about Balaam so far? Well, we know that he's not a true prophet of God because in Numbers 31, go over to chapter 31 and verse 16. Yes, Balaam cannot curse Israel because God won't let him. But eventually Balaam goes home. God now removes his hand from Balaam and Balaam does what Balaam wants to do. Numbers 31, 16, behold, These caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam 
to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. What happened there is that the Israelites were told not to intermarry, not to intermingle with the pagan nations. They get to Peor and suddenly they have this desire to bring all of these women in, commit immoral acts with them. God brings a plague upon the whole nation. And the only way it stopped is one guy gets a pole and runs it through a man and a woman who are together in a tent and kills them. And then it stops. The plague stops. But whose idea was it to entice Israel like this? What does it say in the text? Balaam. The council of Balaam. Balaam went to the Midianites and the Moabites after this incident and said, I've got a way for you to help Israel sin against their God. This will totally disrupt everything they're doing. Let me give you my idea. And you can see how he would have made even more money doing that. Now in Joshua chapter 13, verse 22, it says again, the sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, the diviner, with the sword among the rest of their slain. So once Moses dies and Joshua takes over, they start to fight and conquer and take over the land that God has given them. And they kill Balaam. This prophet who was supposed to speak for God, but actually was a false prophet. The only time he spoke truth is when God put it in his mouth. And we could say, made him speak truth. The New Testament picks up the idea of Balaam. So we don't have to wonder, was Balaam a true prophet or not? Because the New Testament tells us, 2 Peter 2.15, Peter's talking about false teachers. And he uses Balaam as a lesson to teach us about false teachers. 2 Peter 2.15, speaking of these false teachers, he says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They've gone astray. And here's what he says. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. This isn't another Balaam. It's the same one mentioned here in Numbers. The son of Beor. That's like giving a last name. So you're not confused on who the guy is. Who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Why did he go with Balak? Why did God allow him to do that? To teach him a lesson. Because he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He wanted the money. And Peter's saying, this is what false teachers are after today. They want the money. They want the wages of unrighteousness. But he received, Peter, a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. He was mad. He was, he was consumed in his own heart and mind to gain this wealth that was promised to him. But he knew there was a powerful being, the one true God, who would kill him if he disobeyed. So he did indeed go. Only because God allowed it to happen. But there's no question in the New Testament that Balaam had the wrong heart motives and was not a true prophet of God. Jude 11, speaking again of false teachers, Jude writes, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So Jude's just citing all these Old Testament references to what happens to false prophets and false teachers. And he says, just like Balaam, who went after money instead of the truth. And then lastly, in Revelation 2.14, Jesus uses the example of Balaam speaking to the church in Pergamum. The Lord Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Now this is serious. When Jesus has something against you, against the church... Because you have there some, there are some in the church in Pergamum who hold the teaching of Balaam. 
Well, what is that, Jesus? What is the teaching of Balaam? He says, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. That's where we fill in the picture of Numbers 31. Why is Balaam blamed for the immorality that Israel commits at Peor? Because Balaam is the one who had the idea. Hey, Balak, I know you couldn't curse them. I couldn't do that. But we can get them with immorality. Let's put a stumbling block before them. And Jesus confirms that for us. And so even as a church today, even as Christians today, we've got to be careful that we ourselves or we don't let other people put stumbling blocks in front of us. What were they doing in Pergamum? They were going back to pagan sacrifices and they were committing acts of immorality. They were going back to be like the world. So what's the overall consensus on Balaam before we even get into what he said? He was a false prophet, but he had a true message, which means that we as Christians sometimes can use the name Christian, just like he would have used the name true prophet, a prophet of God, prophet of Yahweh. We sometimes can say we're Christians when we haven't really examined our own heart. We haven't done what Balaam should have done, which is examine his own heart, his desire to go. It wasn't his refusal to go with Balak had nothing to do with the fact that he loved Yahweh, the one true God. He refused to go because he knew God would punish him. But in his heart, he wanted to. There are people who come to church every Sunday. There are people who come to church twice a year on Easter and Christmas. There are people who say they're Christians, but they fit with what Jesus said. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. They're not truly regenerate. They haven't examined their own heart. We need to all examine our hearts this Christmas season. Not just go through the emotions, but say, do we love the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we in Christ? Do we trust what the Bible says about Jesus? Or are we just following along with what the culture says? Are we just doing what everybody else does this time of year? Are we just showing up to church, going through the motions, We love to speak of the birth of Christ. We love Jesus as a baby in the manger. But wow, this idea of him dying on the cross or coming back as a king that conquers, that brings fear into the unbeliever's heart. Let's not be like Balaam and go through the motions, but have the wrong heart desire. Let's all examine our hearts here today. Let's say, is this right now in Scripture about the true Jesus Christ that I believe in? Or am I just doing it because everybody else does? So that gives you the background for Balaam. Let's now look at the morning star rising in Israel. Right, that's the bad news. He wasn't a true prophet and we got to watch ourselves not to be like him. But let's get to the good news. He does proclaim some good news. Numbers 24 verse 17. I see him, but not now. So he's talking about this star that's going to rise over Israel, over Jacob. And he says, I see him, but not now. Now, if you're following the context here, it's very interesting. Suddenly, he's talking about a hymn, a person. The previous three prophecies that he gave to try and and curse Israel, but he ended up blessing them. uh, The three that he gave focused on Israel. There were some hints there about Israel, uh, especially in that third one. If you read um, chapter 23, there are some hints there about Israel rising up as a lion, as a lioness. But nothing specifically about a person. Now suddenly he says, look, I'm not going to go home until I tell you one last thing. And he talks about a hymn. I see him. 
I see somebody in his spiritual vision, we could say. He sees somebody, but not now. In other words, he's given a vision by God, a spiritual seeing. It's different than the physical seeing. Him and Balak are looking at the people of Israel. They can see them out there. They can see a huge host of people. This is not physical. He's seeing something in the future. He sees a coming figure, a person. Not now, though. The coming ruler is not in Balaam's lifetime, but it's far in the future. I behold him, but not near. Balaam can see this person. The person is not near. He's not anywhere close. He's not going to show up on the hilltop that they're sitting on. He's far off in the future. He's not in that place at that time. So this is just language that tells us he's having a vision of something that is to come. Something that is to come further down the road. And here's what he sees. A star shall come forth from Jacob. Balaam says a star shall come forth from Jacob. Jacob is one of the fathers of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are often called the fathers of the nation Israel. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. And God gave him the name Israel, which becomes the name of the nation. The nation that had been down in Egypt as slaves and now was being rescued. Now, what does this talk about a star? Why is a star so important? Why do we just sing about three kings, which they weren't really kings, but we'll get to that. Why do we sing about three wise men, which there weren't really three, but we'll get to that too. Um, Why do we sing about the wise men coming to bow down and honor Jesus because of a star? Well, stars in the ancient world were a common metaphor for kings. A king was referred to as a star, a bright and shining star in the heavens. Some cultures even believe that once a a famous or great person died, they became a star in heaven. And they all looked at the stars. They didn't have devices to look at and TVs and all that. So when when it became dark, they looked up into the heavens. Some even tried to read their future in the stars, tell their fortunes. Some thought that the stars told about past events in history. But they all looked to the stars. Even the Jews, you will find in like the book of Job, he talks about constellations. They observe the stars. People out on the ocean observe the stars to navigate. Well, they would often look into the heavens, into the stars, to see if there was anything about a king. In fact, later after this passage we're reading here, much later in history, the great Persian king Cyrus would have a star on his war helmet. His war helmet was like a star or a comet. So there would be a star on each side about where the ear is and these rays coming off of it going down his helmet. The famous pagan king of Asia Minor, Mithridates IV, who killed so many Romans, he wore clothes with a star. He had coins made with a star and with a comet. He used the symbol of a star to tell people, look, I'm a great king. He didn't want to wait until he did anything great. He just said, look, I'm the one that the comet, when I was born, there was a comet. I'm the one that comet prophesied. Even Julius Caesar, when he died that same year, a few months later after he died, a comet was seen in the sky. And all the Romans were out celebrating and they saw this comet for a week. And they said, that's a sign of Caesar's divinity. They called it the star of Julius Caesar. So even pagans are looking for a star that will show them a great and important figure. That gives us some hint as to why the Magi might be coming to see Jesus when he's born. Well, even in Israel, in 132 AD, 
a Jewish military leader named Simon arose. And he led the people to fight against the Romans. He won quite a few victories against the Romans. His name was Simon, but they called him Simon Bar Kokhba. Simon, son of the star. And the rabbis began to say, he's the Messiah. Simon's the Messiah. Now, this is in 132, after Jesus has come and died on the cross. These are the Jews who had rejected Jesus, or at least their descendants. And they say, this must be the Messiah. He's a great military leader. Simon, son of the star. Of course, when he died in battle, they were very much let down and angry about that incident. But in the ancient world, people said, a great king will show himself through this idea of a star. And in fact, we even see Jesus himself say he is the bright and morning star in Revelation 22, 16. Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. It's not pagan, it's actually biblical. And all the pagans were picking up on this theme that a star will signify a great king. Well, let's go to that text in Matthew that I read earlier and just briefly go through it here. Because Jesus says, I am the star. Balaam says there is a coming star that will arise. Now we see this idea of a star, actual star, I believe, in Matthew 2. Now people will say it's not a star, it's a comet. I guess that works too in some cases, but others will say it's an angel. The liberals say it never happened. I think it was an actual star. That's what they call it. These men studied the star. They knew what a star was. I don't think it's a conjunction of planets. They would have known that too. It's a star that acts supernaturally. It's a miracle, in other words, which is what most Christians in church history have held. It is a star that is miraculously moving. Um, we're in uh, Matthew 2. Sorry, I was in Luke there. Luke 2 also describes the birth of Christ. The only two passages that really open it up for us in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke. So the Magi are going to come. Why, does, why are they coming? It says that they came from the east. We don't know exactly where in the east. Probably around Babylon. That's where Magi were gathered. Magi were just wise men. Some say they studied the stars and were astrologers. I don't know about that because they come and worship the one true King Jesus, which seems to be uh, an indication that they're converted, that they understand the Old Testament scriptures. And they come asking, where is he? Where is he born? Herod is upset about that. Jesus has already been born at this point. Because Herod says, kill all the babies two and under, Jesus is probably one to two in that range somewhere. I know at home all your decorations show the wise men are right there at the birth, but they're not. He's a little toddler running around. They're still in Bethlehem. They haven't moved back north yet because they're going to have to go to Egypt first. Anyway, here the, the Magi ask about it. And they say that we saw his star in the east. They saw his star. They were studying. They were watching. They were waiting for his star. They saw his star not looking towards the east. They're in the east. And they saw a star in the west from their vantage point and followed it to Jerusalem. So Herod, of course, wants to know, well, there's something about a king in the Old Testament? He asked the chief priests. They look it up. They look up Micah 5.2. They say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then Herod calls the Magi, the wise men. And he asks, when was this time that the star appeared? That way he knows later who to go after, who the, the age range that he wants to wipe out in Bethlehem are little boys. And he lets the Magi go ahead. Go, search out carefully for the child. Right? They're supposed to come back and report to him. They don't. And look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced 
exceedingly with great joy. So for some reason, the shar had, had disappeared when they came into Jerusalem. They had to ask Herod. They had to get help. And now, when they leave, suddenly God is there guiding them again with this star. And they're rejoicing. They're exciting, excited. It doesn't say they're kings, they're magi. It doesn't say that there's three of them. We don't know how many there are. There's probably two or three or more. They don't have names like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. I know there's all these myths about Christmas that sometimes we have to dig in the Bible and see that they're not true. But it's okay to sing the hymn, by the way. I like that song. It's okay to sing that. They're not kings, though. They're magi. They're wise men. They, can't, they come and they bow down to Jesus. They worship him. They gave him gifts. They treated him like a king. And then they returned to their land and went another way. So how did they know about this star? Well, there's nothing in the pagan literature about a king in Jerusalem that will be signified by a star. There's nothing in the Bible about that except Numbers 24, 17. That's it. That's all anybody's ever found about a king being born in Judea with a star rising to show that. And in fact, they probably knew the book of Numbers. They probably had an Old Testament handy. You remember Daniel? The book of Daniel? And Daniel is called a wise man, a magi. He's part of this group. Nebuchadnezzar needs some magi to interpret his dreams. And he brings them in and Daniel's the only one who can answer because he is wise because God has given him great wisdom and insight. It's very likely, and this is exciting if you think about history, it's very likely that they kept the teachings of Daniel, that they kept even a copy of the Old Testament and studied it, and a group of magi were waiting for this coming king, this promised Messiah. That's amazing to think because they suddenly show up and want to worship him, and they've already brought these gifts. How wonderful is it that God, yes, chose Israel But all throughout the Old Testament, we see him saving Gentiles. We see him saving pagans who once did not believe in him, but then suddenly do. And by the time we get to the New Testament and the Messiah comes, that goes out to the whole world. So many Gentiles come into the faith. This is the one that the Jews had looked for from the time of Abraham. After Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. The Jews longed for that promised seed that was mentioned in Genesis 3.15. And now we we know who this star is. We can look back at the Bible and see because Matthew connects it for us. And Jesus makes sure we understand it at the end of Revelation. The long for Messiah. So when we think about the star, that's fine if we want to try to figure out all the options of what it might have been and get into the details. And there's whole books written about that. There's seminars online that you can watch. But ultimately, it was something God did to point a people to the one true king, to his son, even all the way back in the book of Numbers. Let's look now thirdly at the scepter who rules over all the earth. The scepter. He's not just a star, but he is also represented by a scepter. So we're back here in Numbers 24, verse 17. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Now remember, Jacob and Israel are the same person. So that's parallel. The star and the scepter are also parallel. This is the same person. In ancient times, a scepter was a symbol symbol of royalty. 
the symbol of a king, authority, power. If you held the scepter, you were the king. Now, this idea of a coming king who holds a scepter coming from Israel is mentioned previous to this. Go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis 49. This is another amazing connection. So we saw the Magi connecting with the verse in Numbers. Now go to Genesis 49. And we have here Jacob. Jacob is about to die. And he gets all of his 12 sons in and is going to give them a prophecy about each one of them. Look at Genesis 49.1. Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you What will befall you in the days to come? Now, where have we seen that before? In the days to come. Very specific in Hebrew. In the days to come matches exactly what we saw at the beginning of Balaam's fourth prophecy. He told King Balak, before I go home, let me tell you what's going to happen with that people and your people in the days to come. Word for word, exactly in English and in the original Hebrew. What does it mean? It means the end of days. You might even have a footnote in your Bible, literally the end of days. Now, when we think of the end of days, we think of the day Christ comes back. But to ancient peoples, this was in an age far into the future that is closer to the end than we are. That's the idea here. In the end of days. Now, that wording tells us there's a close connection because it's the only place in the Old Testament where a scepter is mentioned in the end of days to come. Genesis 49, Numbers 24. So let's look at this. Genesis 49. So he brings the sons forth. He goes through each son. Skip down now to verse 8. He says, Judah. So he comes to the son, Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. So somehow Judah, who's not the firstborn, is going to end up as the ruling tribe Over the nation Israel. Now look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, or crouches is probably a better understanding for us. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Here we are with this idea of a lion. Now hold your spot right there. Hopefully you saved your numbers Bookmark. Go back to Numbers 24. Numbers 24. Hold your spot. We just talked about a lion. Numbers 24, verse 9. So this is in the end of his third prophecy before he gets to the fourth one that we've been looking at. Here's what Balaam says. He, talking about Israel, he crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Go back to Genesis 49, 9. Judah's a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Exactly the same question. We see Jacob speaking a prophecy to his son Judah about Judah, and he's like a lion. He's he's so powerful, no one's going to bother him. They don't even dare to rouse him up. It's in the form of a rhetorical question. Word for word, the same coming out of Balaam's mouth. 400 years, 400 plus years later. Now, how did Balaam know what Jacob said? Do you think Balaam could go over to the bookstore and buy a Bible? Let's see, what did uh, Jacob say so I can make sure I get this right? It's not how it works. Jacob is 
one of God's people. Even though he was a rascal at times, he was a sinner. He was forgiven of that. He trusted in the Lord. God gave Jacob this prophecy to his sons that would come true. Guess what happened with Balaam, the pagan Gentile soothsayer? God gave him those words too. And they're the exact same words. Because while we have different people saying things and writing books of Scripture, it's through one author, God. So we see word for word the same connection. Let's continue in Genesis 49 here. Verse 10. By the way, Jesus confirms that he is from the tribe of Judah. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5.5. So continuing here in, in Jacob's prophecy to his sons, look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, which is just another word for scepter, between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of his peoples. That's amazing right there. We have this idea that Judah is going to rule. And there's going to be one king who comes out of Judah. He's a scepter because that's what a king holds. He has the power. He has the the rod of iron that will rule. And in fact, not only is this the kings who come from David forward, but there's a future one. I think this is probably a name. Some say Shiloh is not a name. It's it's more of an idea to the one who belongs. It's also a name of a city, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a person. Until this figure called Shiloh comes, and to that person, all the peoples in Israel, and even the idea of, of all the peoples in the earth will obey him. All the peoples. And he goes on to talk about he's a foal to the vine, a donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, his teeth white from milk. He is coming with all his riches and he's coming to conquer and he's coming to bring obedience to God's people. So the scepter again there. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has a scepter. He will reign the same from the mouth of Jacob as we see over in Balaam. We can look at other passages throughout scripture like Psalm 45, 6, which we won't go to. Amos chapter 1 has the same idea of a scepter. And in Psalm 110 too, Psalm 110 is all about the coming Messiah. It says, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So there's a star coming. That's going to signify the king, that he's also going to reign and rule. He's not just the baby that's born that the Magi came to see. He's going to reign and rule over the whole earth. That's our king. That's our Lord. Let's go back now to Numbers and see how Balaam finishes this out. He says, and he shall crush through the forehead of Moab. Well, that doesn't sound like a baby in the manger. No, he's coming back to reign as a king. Going to crush through the forehead. He's going to wipe out Moab. This one individual in the distant future is going to come back. He's going to come, Balak, and wipe out all your people that are still around at that time. Think about that. And if you're familiar with Genesis 3.15 of the crushing of the serpent's head, you're starting to hear some similar language here. Crush the forehead and tear down all the sons of Sheth. So Moab, you're trying to curse Israel. You're trying to harm Israel. Well, there's one coming who's going to have a scepter and he's going to crush you. And all the sons of Sheth. Now, who is Sheth? Well, scholars don't really know who Sheth is. I can tell you where we find his name elsewhere. 
And that's the son of Adam and Eve named Seth. Sheth in Hebrew is what we say as Seth in English. Now, others will say today that doesn't fit. This was some kind of tribe that the Egyptians called the Sutu that was right next to Moab. That's not the context either, is it? Who is Sheth? Well, Sheth was the son of Adam and Eve. Abel was killed. That was one son. Cain was banished. All of Cain's descendants perished in the flood. The only one to really make it through are Seth's descendants through Noah. And then the whole world is populated through Noah. So what could this be saying? Yes, Moab is going to be crushed, but all the sons of Seth as well. In other words, all the peoples that don't submit to this king. The coming king is going to tear down all the cities, all the walls. No one can stand against him. All the descendants that came from Seth, that came from Noah, that do not trust in him, that do not follow him, will be destroyed. Isn't that what Revelation says? Christ is coming back. If you don't follow him, what's going to happen? You can read about it in the book of Revelation. Just look at the rest of this chapter, chapter 24, and I think you'll see how that fits with the context. Verse 19, Edom will be conquered. Verse 20, Amalek will be crushed. 21 and 22, the Kenites will be defeated. Verse 23, Asher, which is the Assyrians. And by extensions, we could say the Babylonians because they take over the Assyrian Empire. The Persians as well. All of that combined into Asher here. Kittim, verse 24. Who are Kittim? These are the sea peoples, the Mediterranean peoples. Eventually, this word ends up being a word used for the Romans. And then in the last group, he just says Eber. Again, one of those mysterious names. The only time we see it mentioned is Genesis 10. Eber is a son of Seth. So I think this is his way of saying all the peoples of the earth will have to submit to this king. They will be crushed or he will reign over them. As king. That's the point. All the nations. Christ will reign over all of them. Yes, a cuddly baby and swaddling clothes, but he's the Lord God. He's the Son of the Father. He is the one who will reign and rule. Psalm 2 8 Surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, that's a scepter. You shall shatter them like earthenware. If you're a Christian, you can truly celebrate the idea of the birth of Christ. You can truly celebrate it and know that when he comes back, you're not going to be crushed. You're not going to be torn down. That he will have persevered you until that time if he comes back in our lifetime. And if we die, then we'll be resurrected to meet him. You don't have to be concerned that you're one of these sons of Sheth, sons of Eber. He's Christ. He's our Lord. Now, if you're not in Christ... If you're just here maybe saying you're a Christian or or you're having real issues with believing in Jesus, then you're listed among these people groups. You're listed among the people listed at the end of the Bible in Revelation. Christ is coming back. Why not believe on him now? Why not say December 19, 2021, I trusted in Christ. I was just a young child and I was sitting in the service And I heard about, yes, the baby Jesus, but also the conquering Jesus, the same Jesus. Truly celebrate Christmas this year. Charles Spurgeon said, if this child who now lays before the eyes of your faith, talking about the child in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes in Bethlehem's manger, is born to you. If this child is born to you, my hearer, then you are born again. For this child is not born to you unless you are born to this child. In other words, if you're truly born again in your heart, 
then you can truly celebrate the birth of the Messiah. If you're not born again in your heart, if you're not born to him, then he's not truly born to you. He's born in history, yes. He's, it's a fact. But it doesn't mean anything to you. Do you know Jesus as your Savior this morning? Do you know Jesus that even this pagan, diviner magician had to speak truth on? Do you know that, Jesus? The star? The scepter? You know, it doesn't matter what sins you committed in life. It doesn't matter how long you've gone away from Christ and run from the Lord. Christ says you can come to me. Christ says you can believe upon him and be saved. He says he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Come to him while there's time. While there's time. And believer, let's rejoice. Let's rejoice in our Savior. Let's rejoice that everybody, in, just about everybody in the world wants to talk about our Savior at this time. Even though they don't understand. Even though they don't believe fully. We can rejoice. We can celebrate. We can be joyful. We can be happy. You know, there's no reason going around like a Scrooge. Oh, Christmas is all about presents and money and commercialism. And this guy at the store that takes pictures with my kids. That's fine. Let the world do what the world does. But let's celebrate the true Christ this Christmas. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the star of Jacob, the scepter of Israel. Thank you that Christ did come and the gospel went out to the world. That we, most of us Gentiles here today, could be grafted in. These promises apply to us as well. These promises made to Israel in the Old Testament now also apply to those who believe and trust in Christ, part of the new covenant. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice. Let us be grateful, thankful. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the Lord that we love. He's the one that we praise. He's the one that we worship. Let us give thanks in his name. Amen.